welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Claire. And I'm Allie. And today we are doing another slightly different episode. I think this one is probably going to interest a lot of you. I hope. <laughs> we are doing a review slash discussion of fighting freedom. Did Everybody's say- book of the summer. Yeah. yeah, we're shamelessly jumping on that bandwagon. So, uh... Yeah, we're in, we're into it. I have not well, I read think, it, but Allie did read it. I did because I think a few episodes ago I had kind of joked about reading it, and then the more I read about this book and what was coming out, and you know, the more they were leaking excerpts and all of that, I was like, you know what? I actually feel like, for research purposes, I should read this book. And it can't have been a very big read. No, I mean it. I didn't read it in one sitting, but I easily could have in a few hours. It wasn't an effort by any means and it also wasn't very long you know it's a puff piece and yeah so I did read it I thought we should talk about it because it is making a lot of headlines I mean every celebrity focused you know news outlet has published some excerpts from it I would note they sort of um I think undercut the book because there was nothing interesting in the book that hadn't already been published well I mean I think that that was less promotion and more um like the tabloids got their hands on it and just started making stories out of it don't you think maybe I yeah I guess I just feel like in that case the publishers would should assume that that would happen I it was just a very odd marketing strategy to me like I think publish a few excerpts here and there is fine to generate interest but they really went all in on everything and I'm even this week I'm seeing stories come out And, you know, having read the book, I know exactly where it came from. And so it's just not that interesting to me. So it's kind of done this weird cycle of the stories published ahead of time to me made the book less interesting. And now the gossip is less interesting because I've read the book. So, um, well, it's funny that you say that because I think every gossip story I've seen in the last two weeks about the Royals was about this book. And yeah. we were just talking about that before we got started. It's August. It's traditionally slow. So I think that's, you know, maybe for some of us who like gossip, it's a little bit of a gift. But I feel like every day I go online and it's just another story about this was being reported and it's in Finding Freedom. And this this story from six months ago wasn't correct. It was really about this. So... I'm curious to see some of what that you have to say I think is interesting book. and I brought up a few of those instances because I do think correct the, the actual corrections of the record are what I found interesting about this book because that's kind of why it was publicized as existing right was this is the chance to set the record straight the But do the you take it things- as the author's are they reliable? I guess I don't know if this is going too far ahead of ourselves but do you find them to be reliable? Do you find their quote-unquote correction of the record to be the true version of events. I think that I do, and I think we should talk about that when we talk about who the sources might be because I found some of the reporting in here really interesting. Um, But let's jump into it. I Because I I told you, like, when I was – you know, it's so funny. While I was reading it, I felt a little bit, like, ashamed that I was reading this. And then I remembered, you know, there is no such thing as a guilty pleasure. It, it was, it was actually pretty interesting in the larger context, like as a piece of writing, it's not well written and it's not well edited. I mean, it was clearly put out 
as quickly as possible. You know, there were a lot of typos and certain grammatical things that were driving me a little bit nuts. Um, yeah, I mean, this isn't a piece of literature, but okay, let's talk about what it, what it is. So in summary, I'll just do a really quick summary just in case anybody listening doesn't know what this book was supposed to be. It is called Finding Freedom, and it is about Harry and Meghan's quest for freedom from the oppression of the royal family, essentially. Kind of. Because <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't what it is really is a history of Harry and Meghan. Okay. So, you know, they... It, it details everything from their first meeting to the progression of their relationship, their engagement, their wedding, their first year having Archie, you know, all of this. And then interspersed throughout is the, the constant thread of this is what they were up against. These are the obstacles they faced first from the press and um, the public and then from the royal family. And then, you know, this is their decision to step back and how that was done. I mean, none of the plot was to me like revelatory, uh, a couple things, but yeah. So that's basically what this book is about, but I don't know necessarily that the his, the, the record of events that are outlined in this book are really what this book is about. Do you um, think, so I read today that initially they were just going to write this about Harry and Meghan like about their love story. And I think the title was going to be Modern Royals or something like that. And that's what the book was supposed to be. But then around the time Archie was born, they started hearing that they were really, really unhappy. And I think, um, you know, maybe started hearing some whispers and maybe not that they were going to leave, but that there might be more story there. So they kind of expanded the book. Because I'm wondering if originally this was intended to be almost like functioning like kind of an a biography of their relationship to change the public perception of Megan that was ongoing in the press at the time like everything all the stories coming out were horrendously racist and misogynistic and she was getting absolutely hammered was this intended to just be a counteraction to that initially do you think I think so, because the focus of this book, Harry is a bit player okay. in this book, you know, and in his own relationship. I don't know that that's intentional, but that's how it comes across. This is technically about Harry and Meghan, but it's about okay. Meghan. And it's, you know, it, you know, this is why I'm wondering who is this for? You know, is it for people who don't like Meghan? I don't know that this book is going to change any minds about that. Why is this I don't here? know I that mean, those people would read the book. Exactly. And I don't think that it reveals anything new to change any perception. So like we like, for example, like, you know, this book was marketed as the real story. Right. So but what what I know now that I didn't know before reading this is like, OK, Me Megan and Harry's first blind date was a group hang. Cool. Or actually interesting. It, we, it does reveal that he proposed just after their summer trip to Botswana in August 2017, which is well before their public debut at the Invictus Games in September and the announcement of their engagement in November. But I would say that that news is I was going to say, did that surprise you? It's just you? new did information. Did that surprise you? No, it didn't surprise me. This is what I mean. Like, even the news that is, quote, like, new, nothing was surprising. Like, to me, I figured, well, of course, 
they were engaged for a few months before they announced it because they have to get the logistics in place and that can't happen overnight and they're giving them time to enjoy this by themselves. I also just never Um, believed that Harry would be allowed to move a girlfriend into Kensington Palace without... Or that she would do the move and give up her job and her life essentially without any kind of confirmed, you know agreement in place that it was for something I, I more should permanent. just point out that the Lifetime movie, Harry and Meghan, um, I forget what it was called exactly, uh, depicted this. He proposed in Africa, and then they did the rollout with the Vanity Fair story and all of that after well, the fact. so the timing of that is interesting because she interviewed for that Vanity Fair story in June. Oh. They went to Botswana in August... And the story comes out in September. So by the time the story came out, they were engaged. But when she did the interview, they hadn't, they were, I think they were just about to leave for Africa. But they were clearly on the same page about their future. Right. And he didn't propose in Africa, but they had a discussion about it in Africa and essentially agreed they were going to get married. And he proposed, he did propose at home over chicken, as they said, just like shortly after they got back. But again, this is my point is like, None of this detail really changes the picture. Right. It adjusts the timeline a it's little bit. It's not like he proposed um, two days after they met and they hid it for a year. Right. I, that way I would find um, thoroughly shocking. Right. And, and the, you know, the real question there's that I think is still unanswered that isn't fully reported on that is a bit of more of like the, the they said, they said kind of thing is like, why did they decide to leave and what is the point of this decision, right? And, and I think for this book, you know, the public meaning mostly the media, has basically blamed Megan for most of this decision, even though, you know, this book and and other prior reporting has come out and said that actually Harry was the instigator of this decision to leave because this book details in depth, you know, Megan gave up a lot to become the Duchess of Sussex. And so I don't know that she necessarily, her first choice would have been to just give up on it. Right. Um... So it it was it's not fair to say that it was her decision, but it's the media has put it that way, and also the rest of the family is positioned as these aggrieved parties who are blindsided by this selfish decision, right? Um, and so this book is trying to set the record straight. I just I don't know that it succeeds in its intent because of how it goes about doing this. Like I don't know specifically if this book helps Megan. I mean, the book seems designed to try to rehabilitate whatever damage that is perceived to have been done to her image, but I just don't see how what's in this book could do that. Nor is a book going to do that, right? Like a book... Well, that's what I... Well, as you say, like the people who really hate her aren't going to be reading this book. And, you know, it's obviously... It's not an objective, unbiased piece of journalism. No, and in fact... When, so I want to talk about the sources because, first of all, the two authors are royal reporters. They also come across as very – I mean, I'm not clear if they live in this world to any degree. You know, often royal reporters are embedded, so to speak, in that they grew up with a lot of these people and, like, they're trading access for positive press. And, you know, there's a whole ecosystem that exists. So these reporters clearly fall somewhere in, in that system but the tone of this book really struck me as I mean okay first of all let me just clarify I have never really read a book like this before about like a royal biography or anything so 
maybe this is like at least not about a modern royal so maybe this is normal but I found their tone to almost be salivating at this like members only life that Harry and Meghan live like they're really fawning over the idea of like private clubs and like the access and the you know the the private jets and rarefied air it's not just right they're not just describing that this is a world that they inhabit they're describing it in glowing terms wow so So i the only book i've read similar to this is i read a biography of elizabeth and philip when we were doing our elizabeth episodes and it was a similar thing where i wouldn't say the author was you know salivating over the lifestyle that the queen lives but it painted a very romantic rosy epic love story for Elizabeth and Philip that I think is look I'm not saying that I don't think that they love each other but you know we've talked about this before Philip is known to be a difficult man it's probably likely that he's had affairs over the years and the book I read painted him as like this upstanding could do no wrong you know prince literally and like that part of it I thought was interesting because the book was intended to promote their love story as one for the ages so I think you're I think what you're talking about is definitely indicative of of the genre but I think depending on what the book is intending to do you're gonna get those weird biases like it sounds like these authors were trying to tell the story of why Megan fell in love with Harry yeah and I think you're right like I think some of this comes with the genre like there's a lot of unnecessary detail in here um and I think that it's for the audience right like this is why people read these books Mm -hmm. to get a glimpse at this hidden world to imagine themselves in these like tapestry laden hallways and you know what I considered to be like very floral <laughs> prose and like unnecessary descriptions or side tangents or, you know, anything, you know, I can understand if like that's just kind of part of the landscape of this, but, you know, also it's just the way that she was described. Like they'd call her like the very first chapter says, and they're talking about her going shoe shopping, right? And they're saying the young American actress was on a mission or they call her the beautiful actress. Now, Look, Megan was 34 when she met Harry, so I'm not going to say she was actually old. Of course she wasn't. Yeah, watch but like to there. me, <laughs> Right, but to me, when someone's like the young actress, right. like they're not talking about someone in their mid, mid-30s. Like they're talking about like a young ingenue. Like I just felt like, I mean, not to say that you can't say young when you describe 34, but in the context, it struck me as like a weird image and not really what was happening. I mean, we're talking about Megan at 34 who is fresh off a divorce and another relationship. She's been on a TV show for like 6 years. She's, you know, right, she's seasoned. been in Hollywood. For, yeah. yeah, she's she so like the the word young to me just kind of skates over a lot of history and also I mean, they did finally mention her her ex-husband, but like he really got glossed over because again, it's not the point of this book, but I felt like they spent a lot of time describing her time coming up through the Hollywood ranks and he was there for all of that and was not really mentioned. Like there's a lot of reference to her struggling, but I mean, she's living with them. You know, it's just like, I don't know how much you could really excise him from that, but 
again, this isn't part of this conversation. And well, and, and it's also, clear she probably ref- doesn't want him. Well, uh, in the in in the story, right? And and it looks better for her to be to have come out of this struggle and be successful. You know, I mean, because that's also what kind of made me chuckle a little bit. Not to, I mean, look. There's a lot of references to her, like, quote, hit show, which, okay, yes, it was a hit on a cable channel, but it's not like prestige television or raking in the viewers. You know, she wasn't on, like, Game of Thrones, you know? And so I just, like, I mean, of course she was successful. Like, any actor would kill to be on a show for seven years and, you know, um, be successful in that regard. But that's really her own major success as an actress. And also the this book claimed that her success as an actress was a willingness to work harder than her peers, not just the luck of Hollywood. Right, right. So again, I like it that kind of angle that I found really strange that was like super flattering to almost kind of defy reality right. in a way. Right, and let's yeah. be clear, like, you're not criticizing Megan, you're just saying that no. you found this unnecessary. I mean, I agree with like, you. Like, I just feel like if you're talking about her being an actress who was on a TV show, you could say, like, she struggled for years and finally got the audition that worked out and ended up on a, you know, on a hit cable show and, you know, a well-regarded, at the very least, cable show and, you know, parlayed that. But, like, talk about it that way. Don't – like, I just felt like some of it – Don't make it sound like she was on Mad Men or, you know, winning Emmys. Or don't make it sound like she made that opportunity happen. Like, I I don't know. Like, she didn't create the TV show. It's just – it's just all of it was a little bit strange. Um, And and that's, I think, important when I – when I'm thinking about the sources because obviously the authors themselves are sources because they are royal reporters, so they're using a lot of their – previous reporting to feed into this story um I mean and so where did you think they got all of that detail well so that I want to talk about because who are the other sources of this book because a lot of people are talking off the record you get a lot of mentions of previous or current aides or staffers um or friends of the couple um Megan and Harry have claimed not to be involved but the acknowledgments cite them as sources. Now, that might be because they're sources in previous reporting, um, maybe not particularly to this book, um, but many events described only happen between the two of them or between a small group of people. So either a protection officer is a source or it's conjecture or they are actually sources. And it, in to this me, book. it strikes me as playing fast and loose. I've seen some interviews with one of the authors where he says, this is all based off of our reporting or prior reporting or friends of the couple. But I think prior reporting covers a lot of sins, right? Because you mm-hmm. could you could have sat down with them for an interview where they tell you a lot of this information and it's maybe not for what you're specifically interviewing them for. But he's been very clear that this is a relationship that he's developed with them and so then you turn around and say I'm going to write a book can I use some of that material and they say yes but they can still say they were not interviewed for this book and I think you're right I think that has to be the answer because so I want to call out a very specific passage that is just 
one example of many of very similar type passages that really call into question this idea that they would have nothing to do with the book. I mean, to me, it's just straining credulity to even make that claim because this is the description from Megan's first meeting with the queen. So first of all, this will give you an example of the unnecessary detail that goes into some of this. Um, okay, quote, the maroon and cream abusan carpet accented with a floral and scroll pattern complemented the gilded picture frames around the old master paintings hanging on eggshell blue walls. It was a paler shade of Tiffany blue with the most spectacular ornate crown moldings that Megan had ever seen. Was she really meeting with the head of the Commonwealth? Okay. Did, How do we know that these that? are the most spectacular crown moldings she's ever seen? And at this point, what does the head of the Commonwealth mean to her? Like, I feel like this, the authors are putting themselves in her head in a way that to me is really, it, it almost doesn't really feel like reporting. <laughs> I mean, it's not. I think, I think yeah. this, we should dispense with the notion that this was intended to be a journalistic endeavor. And I'm not putting this down. Look, we all love fluff pieces. We all, I mean, yeah. we're, I'm, I'm like sitting here thinking like, I'm going to read this up at some point this summer because it sounds oh, like you a totally great should. beach read. But um, it is. That's what I said. <laughs> I, I agree with you. It's almost like from everything you've told me so far, I'm just wondering like, why not just admit that you were part of it? Because it's clearly them well, getting their side of the story out there. And, I, and, and it would, it would give it even more credence if they said, yeah we were part of this and I I think you were just kidding just now but I had the exact same thought reading many of these passages was like did Megan write this because it's her style I mean like we've seen bits of her writing samples and this putting it in her head kind of thing was you know I I don't know I just like that's just one example that I thought was really strange both in terms of like tone and also sourcing called a lot of that into question I think interesting um so okay that's that's the sources and like I guess the big question too of this book is like does it work you know is it going about correcting the record on who Megan is and I'm not sure actually what image of Megan this book is trying to project right because the authors essentially are countering the claims of her being a social climber by detailing all the ways she was trying to advance in society or Hollywood, right? So all the ways she's trying to expand her business and her career beyond her hit show around the time she met Harry. So she's looking into a possible TV show that's centered on food and travel, a possible cookbook, you know, all of this. And she's hired new PR and management teams to help her move into this realm, essentially transitioning the TIG, her old website, into something bigger. And the TIG is described as something clearly created solely as a launch for all of this. And the authors here describe her as aiming for a goop level of success. Like she's using Gwyneth Paltrow and goop as maybe not attainable, but inspirational. And and I, I want to be clear. I think that that's all fine and nothing to actually judge her for, because I think what I appreciated about this was it's a really honest view of what it takes to succeed in Hollywood these days. Like you can act, but then you also have to build a social following. You have to find different business avenues to parlay that following. And then you funnel all of that back into getting cast in roles, right? And she was aging out of the ingenue role. Yes. So, so that's actually pretty smart. You 
diversify. Yeah. And look, people make a lot of money off of, I think Busy Phillips says, you know, she's now more famous for having an Instagram account than she is for acting. Mm-hmm. And she said, like, I just made more money on Instagram than I did acting. And now she just started, I follow her on Instagram. And she just started a podcast and she had a short-lived talk show. And it was like, same thing. Like, there, the acting field is so crowded. If you're not you know, creating 10 side hustles as it is, then you aren't, you aren't doing yourself any favors. Right. And so I'm not saying anything that she was trying to do was wrong or suspect, but I think when you try to pose that against her rather sudden or even eager transition into monarchy, that you're kind of making the argument for her detractors because she's clearly chasing success And she's doing it through all the avenues available to her, but it's still success that's derived from fame and caused by feeding more fame. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with this, but if you're trying to use this example to counteract the claim that she's fame hungry and social climbing, I don't know that that that's how you're going to do that. Right, Um, because clearly she she viewed success as being well-known. Yes. And and I say eager transition into monarchy because I think this book actually really does tr- like depict her as not hesitating at all about royal life. Um, whereas, you know, most people would face the prospect of what's in front of them and run the other way. <laughs> and, well, and you almost wonder, and, you know, and I don't know if the book, maybe this is a good point to ask this, does the book depict Harry as warning her about any of that because you would think that would be his responsibility to kind of I mean you know for all the criticism that William got for making Kate wait for a ring for 10 years which let's put that aside because I think that's kind of sexist and gross but I think it was coming from a place where he was trying to make her see once you're in you're in and it's a really hard life and I want to make sure this is what you want and did right. Harry and do so any of that? I don't think so. Or not in a way that I think made it clear. And and I talk about this a little bit. I have a section on this a little bit later when we talk about their exit. Because to me, a lot of their rationale falls apart when you think about Harry. None of this should have been news to Harry. And so I don't know that he necessarily covered with her the extent to like how this level of fame wasn't and like service or their job was not what she thought it could be. Like, I think, you know, they talked a lot in their engagement interview. She's mentioned, you know, on numerous occasions since entering this world that, you know, they really bonded over this idea of public service. But I think there was a like very fundamental disconnect on what that actually meant versus being an actress who does philanthropy or, you know, community service and a royal who does these I things wonder if and, and how you do that she had a vision of it as being like princess diana walking through the landmines in africa not realizing that all of that happened after she divorced charles right and um and i i want to put a little pin in this discussion okay. because i think that this is really at like the fundamental problem that she and Harry faced. Like, I really think that overall this book is kind of setting up the thesis that her world was very, very big and it was about to get even bigger. You know, she's got all these opportunities that she's exploring and then 
it, it arguably she got more famous and more successful in what she was doing, but her world got a lot smaller. And I think that disconnect or like that paradox is the problem. Okay. Um, and so we'll talk about that in a bit because I think that's the, the ultimate point of all of this issue. You know, I know them so well. Right. I know what the well, you was. read the book, so I mean. <laughs> now that I've read the book. Um, but I don't know that it's a point that the book was making explicitly. Like it was just something that I feel like I threaded together. So again, I don't know that the image that they're trying to use to defend her is really making the argument that they think it is. I don't think it's making the argument that she's a bad person, but I don't think that it's counteracting this narrative of like her being fame hungry. You know, she could be fame hungry. There's nothing wrong if people want to be famous. Right. Go out there and try to be famous. That's not the point I'm trying to right. make. But I don't think it's making the argument that she had no interest in Right. That. You're saying, I mean, it sounds like you're saying the book is trying to make the claim that all of those that all of this was accidental. Right, right. Or, she just, yeah. she just, someone, and it's like, you know, no one's a saint. No one's that naive. Well, I think there's a something that Harry said in their engagement interview, too, that's quoted in this book about how she tripped and fell into his life. I have a lot of problem with that. Right, statement. right. She, she tripped and <laughs> fell, like but she, she had saw her... the step and tripped over it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she had her eye on the prince, but. She said yes to a blind date with him. Right, right, right. And I feel like any informed person would know what that meant. Like, and you can claim, oh, I'm from America. I don't really no, know no, about no. the Royals. No, no, no. If you're from America you and you're in... You know enough yeah. about them that you know that this is not a small thing to go do. Right. And, I, and plus, I have a hard time believing that you wouldn't be peripherally aware. And even if you didn't care about gossip, which, I mean, people in Hollywood love to gossip, so that's out the window. She was. She was also, also. Their social worlds are in yes, our, are like I was overlapping just say, at this point. So like, she has there's just no friends way. who are able to set her up on a blind date with a prince. Lets you know that she wasn't that far removed from him. And even if she didn't know anything about him personally, she knows the circles that he runs in. She knows the type of people that he's friends with. She knows what that life entails. And you're right. I mean, it's look. I think most pre- people like most women, most single women who are like interested in the world and interested in nice things, if presented with the opportunity to go on a blind date with a prince, would not say no. Now, would they jump head first into a marriage? That's another question. But I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that inherently. I don't think there's anything wrong with being like, oh yeah, I'll go on a date with a prince. Hell yeah, sign me up. Like, yeah, and that's how exactly how it's described, how she thought it was, like, a really interesting thing to do. There's no reason to say no. It could be fun. You never know. And, you know, it was She's just, not like, like a fun thing to do. And then we'll get married, and I have this, like, 10-point plan where I'm going to convince him to marry me in a year, and then we're going to have a baby, and then I'm going to drag well, him out of the royal family. Like, there are people that actually funny think that that was her plan. So she had been married. That relationship, they were together for, I think, almost, like, 10 years before they got married and then they were only married for less than two years Mm. and that coincided with like her life basically taking off right right? or her professional life um and then she had another serious relationship after that for two years so she is is talked about in this book as someone who is not a casual dater she really falls hard when she falls for people and she falls with a long-term view in mind so like I do think that they're probably Once she met him and they connected, 
I do actually think they were just both in a place where they were like, yeah, I want to find someone I could spend the rest of my life with. And they felt like they found that person. Nothing is wrong with that. Their lights were on Um, to borrow from Sex in the City. It's like men get married when their light is on because they they're ready and the first woman they meet is the woman they marry um really cynical view but you know like you're saying they they wanted a long they both wanted something long term you well and there's a lot of talk about like ticking boxes which is like really unromantic but I think that that's true like I think she ticked all his boxes and that that was really rare well yeah I mean I think what Harry you know putting myself into Harry's shoes what Harry probably saw was a well-educated, articulate, beautiful, poised woman who was not intimidated by him, who was refreshingly outside of his sphere. So, you know, he she's been vetted, right? Because she's there. So he knows she's, you know, she didn't just fall off the street. It's not like he knows nothing about her. Um, she's, you know, got a little Hollywood glamour. She clearly can carry herself in this room. If it's a group hang and she can get along with these people in this room, you know, she's already, she's already made it. Oh, well, let me be clear. It was a group hang. They didn't hang with the group. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that was there as a backup just in case it didn't work out. But like, apparently they ignored everybody all night okay. long. Okay. So, <laughs> so, all right. All right. But my point is like, I, I could see what boxes she might be ticking. And then, you know, Pers- on a personal level, if you then connect with that person, I mean, yeah, all systems go. Do, do you right. think, and maybe this is later, I don't know, but do you think, and I hate that I'm going to ask this question, do you think that her age had anything to do with it? Because Harry is a member of the royal family. If he gets married, it is expected that he will procreate. Right? I think once they were serious or decided they were going to be serious that whatever conversations at that point they're having about the future, I can't imagine that that didn't come up because I can't imagine that they would have a conversation about, okay, we want to get married and like starting to talk about, and I think I want kids. And then saying like, yeah, but that timeline can't be another, it can't be like Kate and William timeline. Like you can't wait a decade. Right. right? Um, I think even, you know, she was, you know, by the time they're getting married, she's 36. I think, you know, there's a reason they had Archie right away. Like, I think there's a reason maybe even he didn't wait very long to propose because like even him being, you know, 33, 34 at that point, like if you think, you know, and you have the financial backing and you have all of this, I mean, why wait? And um, except for the part where he's royal, that's right. that's literally the only thing that would argue against that. But um, I think they decided not to let that stand in. No, their I mean, way. like I agree with you. Like the average couple meeting, like that's that's like you know, even like in my friend group, and probably you've experienced this as well. Is the older you get, the faster people get engaged because you know, like the, you're you know who you are, you know what you want. There's no reason to wait, but none of us are, you know, members of the monarchy, unfortunately. So, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was a joke just because obviously it's a life of enormous privilege and we're living in a pandemic and, you know, I'm sure it's going better for them than it is for most of us. Um, but my point I'm trying to make is I think that like in a vacuum, 
that would make sense, but they're not in a vacuum. They're in a pretty big... But I think... I get the sense that they tried to operate as if they were. Right. And that's okay. also another source of friction right. is that they just decided this is what we want. We're going to do it. And like every time they ran up against friction of the monarchy, they really got impatient mm-hmm. with it. But I think, again, going back to this idea of what exactly did Harry prepare her for, I think that was really irresponsible of him. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. But they th- – anyway – so um, one other thing I wanted to cover, because I don't really know where to put this, but that I actually found a kind of an interesting nugget of this and definitely something that would go towards trying to present Megan as um, a better person is that apparently she's religious. I, okay, look, I'm not going to say one thing or another, but I, I'm not surprised that that's in the book. Right. Because. and 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 I think they made it sound more like, her expression of it is more of like a California spirituality, you know, kind of thing. Um, but many sources were describing her relationship to God. So I don't and know. And maybe that's... Apparently she had a religious roommate in college and they were really close and like that really influenced her. Well, and she did go to Catholic um, school, didn't she? She did. Yeah. I mean, again, nothing wrong with her being religious. I found it a little bit surprising because I've never heard this before about her. Um, I, she did convert yeah, to the Anglican church say, before the wedding, which wasn't required. But I wonder if this um, is just like, was intent, that little nugget was just intended to like kind of bolster her English credentials of like, well, of course, you know, cause, cause I think there was a lot of cynicism when she converted to the Anglican church because everybody was like, she's, you know, 36 and she's converting to a new religion. She's just doing it to fit in. And this is maybe intended to temper that a little bit and being like well actually it wasn't that big of a deal um you might be right because it is presented here as just she considered it another step on her religious journey and that she did convert because she thought it was uh something to do out of respect to the queen right right because kate didn't convert until after her wedding not to compare them. Oh, really? I don't want to fall into that so trap. You can get married in the Anglican church if you're not an Anglican? Yeah, it's so it's not required for them to actually convert. I think it's understood that they will eventually because, like, I think Kate would have converted because their kids are going right, to be baptized right. in the church. So, yeah, but it wasn't a requirement before the wedding. Megan had a baptism and a lot of his family attended except not Will and Kate, so... <laughs> of course. How, okay, so let's talk about yeah. Will and Kate because they're in the book. Okay, let's talk about them. Um, okay, um, I I first also want to just – I don't want to linger too long on this because we have talked a lot about this, but I did want to bring up one other element that I thought um, was covered really well in this book before we talk about Will and Kate, which is that this book really makes it crystal clear that the racist element mm. of her press coverage was a very different beast than anyone before that the palace was both either unprepared or unwilling to handle it and we've Um, talked about that where it was like you know I think they get a lot of criticism and I'm not saying it's unfair criticism because we've talked a lot about how like maybe they should change the playbook Mm -hmm. um but you know they were applying their rules right no matter the situation this book points out that there might be other underlying reasons Mm -hmm. for that because like we talked about 
the stories about her, right? You know, the straight out of Compton and not in the society blonde style of previous girlfriends. Um, But the authors are also pointing out that racism in Britain is often most blatant in the question of who is authentically English. um, Because Megan is an American. So that's already a strike against her. Because there's also this like classist element too, right? Um, So she definitely couldn't be English because she's American. And then her biracial identity would be another blocker because actually one of the authors of this book is biracial and was told by a palace staffer, mind you, I never expected you to speak the way you do. Yeah, I have no problem believing that at all. So I think when you're taking palace staffers who have no problem speaking to someone's face in this manner and confronting the idea of racism, I honestly just don't think they saw it as a big deal. We've we've talked about this where a lot of it, the issue wasn't, it's not the family, it's the people around them, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that the family, sh- you know, obviously, you know, you set down the law, right? If the queen said, please fix this, they'd have to go fix it. But, you know, on the one hand, you've got... But she only does that in matters that interest her. Like, something right. that really stuck out to me in this book is these these people are very passive. They are. Members of their and own existence. And I think existence. that's, like, kind of like an Englishness, right? Where it's just, like, that stiff upper lip. You just muddle through and just get... get a, and, and, it, and, of course, the queen has never experienced racism. So, in her mind, it's like, oh, it'll go away. She can just deal with it. It'll go away. You know, let's just not feed the beast. Don't make any comments. And that's all well and good if you're talking about, like somebody complaining that the queen didn't, you know, wave correctly out of her carriage, but it's a totally different animal when you're talking about these stories that were coming out and hinting that Megan wasn't good enough because of the color of her skin. But I think you're right. Like, right. you know, we talked about this. There's so much snobbery. It's because it's not just, you know, this history of colonialism, like we talked about in our last episode, feeds into the racist element. But then you've got the whole concept of monarchy and aristocracy is feeding into the class divide. And Megan comes from neither white, royal, or English stock. So, of course, it's like, Mm -hmm. they're just like, oh, she is not one of us and she never will be. And I think you're right. Like, when you take all of that attitude, even if some of it is subconscious, when she's over there saying, why won't anybody defend me in the press? They're like, hey, Megan, what's the big deal? They're like, defend you against what? Right. I mean, <laughs> that, and and I, I really just brought this up again also in context of our last episode. You know, we talked a lot about the monarchy's holding up of the Commonwealth as this treasured asset. Um, but like Megan's treatment shows that they might love having it as a prop, but they have no idea how to treat actual, quote, outsiders as welcome. But I mean, um, they struggle with that, with people that, like, you know, Diana is the best example. She should have been fine. She was white, English, upper class aristocracy, and she still had a hell of a time. And I don't yeah. think that they I ever mean, they, learned. They, these are not people that will go the extra mile. Exactly. For you. I'm just saying, I don't think they ever learned any lessons from her. And I think, you know, maybe they learned a little bit when they tried to, in, you know, integrate Kate into the family, but it seems to have been more of like, let's bury her a little bit and then nobody will say anything bad. And Megan obviously wasn't yeah. going to be buried. She was like out there front and center, like, let's go. And that personality clash comes up a bit. Like they're describing, oh, well, you know, Kate, well, one person actually said this and this is like so... I don't think these people understand how they sound when they talk, but one palace aide was like, oh, you know, 
the Duchess of Cambridge used to call me, you know, back when she was the girlfriend and she would just be like, I'm so sorry to bother you about this thing. And, you know, and I think Megan one would never apologize for bothering someone with a real problem. And, but also that use of the term, like the girlfriend, I was just like, these people are just interchangeable. It's also like an English thing where it's like, so sorry. Like, can you help me move the truck off of my car? I'm so sorry to bother you. (laughs) You know, whereas like Megan would be like, there's a truck on my car. Can you help me move it? It's it's a very American versus English thing. Um, yeah. And I think the culture clash, when you aren't inclined to overcome it on the behalf of, and I'm talking about the courtiers, the courtiers, not Megan. When, when they are not inclined right. to do her any favors already, it's just way more pronounced. Okay, so let's talk about the Cambridges. Okay. Because they're not actually large looming presences in this book. Not really. Um, there are bits and pieces here and there. Um, and my takeaway, though, is that they don't really come across terribly. I think they just come across as kind of cold, but maybe the answer is just very English. Right. You know, and I think it goes back to this, what we were talking about of like, there's not an extra level of warmth here and there's not an extra effort. It's all just kind of buck up you, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that kind of thing. And so, you know, William's use of this girl in reference to Megan, I think is what made the most headlines recently. But in the book, I actually think it comes across more as a brother asking for caution. And I think considering Harry and Megan got engaged only a little over a year after meeting, it was warranted because, you know, in royal terms, that is a blink of an eye. And, and I will say, reading this book and actually thinking about the real timeline of events and how compressed it was and considering actually how much time they realistically could have spent together before they got engaged. I mean, Megan wasn't living in the UK. She was working. Harry was working. They would probably see each other once a month, but for how many days? You know, it's like, I just think realistically they could not have spent that much time together. Right. Um, I was kind of taken aback that they reached such a huge decision like this so quickly. Mm. Um, so in that context, I actually... It you makes know, it like it's like it's not offensive. It makes sense to me yeah. that William was like, "Hey, do you do you think you want to slow this down?" And and William's not the only one who did this. Harry has a really good friend who apparently he almost fell out with over asking the same thing. Um, this is like a friend he's known forever who um, then didn't make the cut to the wedding reception because Harry was pissed at him for questioning his speed at which he was making these decisions. What, okay, does that say something about Harry? Like, he yes. doesn't like criticism? Because the fact that he would even view that as criticism is a little surprising. I mean... Well, I think at this point, the press yeah. has been on their case. So everything's everybody's, colored by... Everything's, yeah. everything's colored by this. There is a lot of reverence in this book to Harry being thin-skinned, though and very sensitive and then he gets angry because he thinks he's being not taken seriously because he's being oversensitive I well, that think, sounds like he's got some unresolved issues <laughs> like I'm not I'm not putting him down I'm just saying I bet you he does like he's always no but I do think two, like in this instance finally he's he, he's he's driving his own train so to speak he's made a monumental decision about his life and everyone is asking him are you sure right and I do think it says something about him that he's not self-aware enough to realize why they would be asking this because even for grown adults with no reason to wait, getting engaged within like 14 months is fast. We talked about this. This story came out 
at some point because we had a conversation and I, it may have been reported a little differently about William. Um, I think it was like right when it started to come out that they were having the, the brothers were having relationship issues that it had come out that William had tried to warn Harry and we had a conversation and I'll have to figure out which episode that's in, but we had a conversation on this podcast about how I said, if, if no one sat Harry down and asked him, are you sure? Then they wouldn't have been looking out for him because they didn't know her. They didn't know who this is. I, I don't find that offensive at all. I find that actually expected. And I'm surprised Harry right. didn't expect it. Well, and this is the other thing is that Harry should have realized that they don't know this person at all. I mean, it took them a decade to be comfortable with Kate, right? right. <laughs> so Megan's been there for barely a year at this point. And she's only met William a handful of times. I think she's met Kate twice at this point. And again, as I say, realistically, I don't know how well she could have known Harry. I mean, you know, they're talking on the phone all the time. They're going on romantic vacations together, but that is not real life. a relationship. Right, right. That's not real life. <laughs> and so, I mean, I know like that's the, that's the joke about Hollywood relationships, right? It's like, it's not real life. And that's why people get divorced so much. But like, it's the same pattern here. And so I would say I I actually think it was just looking out to ask, hey, just take a beat and think about this. But I don't think combining that with the the greater atmosphere that was happening at the time that Harry was in a position to listen. Mm. And I don't think anybody was trying to talk him out of marrying her. I think they were just like, do you have to marry her this year? Right. You know? Mm. So, yeah. Um, okay. So another story that had come out was, remember, Megan making Kate cry. Right. Um, at Charlotte's flower girl fitting sources say that actually that story was really puzzling. Like nobody knew where that came from because, you know, tensions are high cause you're in a fitting with a lot of children for a high profile wedding, but like nobody was crying <laughs> and that I think it was probably just somebody witnessed like a momentary, like verbal sharpness or something, but like nothing huge. Um, and like, I think both households were a little puzzled by that one. Interesting. Um, same thing, actually, with the story about Megan berating one of Kate's staff members. Um, Kensington Palace was apparently really confused about that story because Megan was on really good terms with the person it was rumored to be about. I, and so they were like, where like, where does this stuff come from? I feel from? like a lot of that was like something was clearly up, right? And that was maybe more of just like tabloid gossip trying to fill in the blank where you, you know, you start at point B and work your way back to point A. Like, yeah. oh, they're fighting. Maybe, maybe Megan said something to one of Kate's staff or maybe Megan make, made Kate cry or, you know, like however that works. Um, it's like taking yeah. a picture and making up a story about it. I mean, and there were stories about, you know, Megan's interactions with certain staff. Okay. So, but then talking about the relationship between Kate and Megan. So, what does seem clear from all of this is that the two women just never move past casual acquaintances, basically. Um, and I think part of that is it doesn't seem like Kate ever really tried to be a resource for Megan. Arguably, that's not her job. But then I would think as the only other person literally in the same position, she would have tried. I mean, I do find it a little strange if she never set time aside to help Megan but I, I I think it's just going back to this idea of like a clash of English versus American personalities you know and she was probably like oh you know she'll be fine or also let's not forget that 
during this compressed timeline of a year and a half, Kate was pregnant and had a newborn during most of this. So she was probably either like constantly vomiting because she's famously got terrible morning sickness and then juggling three kids and her own duties as a duchess. So she probably expected aides to help Megan find her footing and that it wasn't her job nor her place to really insert herself. Um, but the aides obviously dropped the ball. Yeah, so. I find that a little surprising just because, like you say, she's someone who would know what it's like. But I wonder if it comes back to that everything was kind of rushed and maybe they were all just waiting to see what would happen. Because I kind of get the sense from stories I've read of the family is like it it almost feels like a situation where they didn't want to get involved or weren't willing to get involved because everything happened so fast they were almost maybe assuming it was like a 50-50 chance of crashing and burning so they almost don't want to like waste their energy and I'm not saying that that's right I'm just wondering if that's part of it or like you say maybe she was busy or maybe maybe she just was like, no one was there to help me, so I'm not going to do it for Megan. Like, I have no, I obviously yeah. have no idea what she was thinking. I also think, so the tensions between William and Harry go back to around this time. I mean, ever since William's this girl mm-hmm. conversation with Harry. Um, and Kay is fiercely loyal to William, so maybe she felt like she couldn't reach out because it would betray William. You know, yeah. I mean... Some other another common thread of this book is like living in this family is toxic as oh, hell. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I'm and just thinking about they like don't have the... the same kind of finan- family dynamic right. that normal people it's have. It's almost like you're my coworker, not my family member, except for legally we're family. And like every once in a while, you know, your immediate family, you might look out for them in a different way, but once you introduce different people into this equation, like, that doesn't happen. Well, it's so strange that you mentioned this, and I'm really interested in this, because there were, you know, you have to think, they went to that event at Wimbledon together. There are, you know, the Christmas walk, where it was clearly there was some kind of effort on their part to at least project an image that they were friends or got along. And I think the press would have eaten that up if they had fueled that even more. So there clearly was something behind the scenes holding them back from doing that. And it and I think all of that was for the press. Right, oh, I, well, from what you're saying, it sounds like it was absolutely a show because, yeah. you know. Well, like Kate sent Megan flowers for her birthday, which is a nice gesture. But then apparently Megan would have much rather preferred Kate pick up the phone and say, hey, how are you doing? Which is like... Again, this personality clash of, like, what you think a nice gesture is. Right, right. It sounds like they Um, just didn't have much in common. No. And I think when you go back to that interview that Harry and Meghan gave while they were in Africa, and Meghan said, not a lot of people have asked if I'm okay. That's for Kate. I think she literally means nobody in the family ever bothered to ask if she was okay. And I think, you know... If all of this togetherness is for show, but, you know, they're watching a tennis match together and they can't really have a full conversation in public, all of, you know, these aren't instances where somebody's going to be like, hey, how you doing? Right, right. No, I find it kind of interesting because on the one hand, you know, you're like, wow, basic human kindness, you might check in, but I think it might come, it might come back to like, not just just assuming it was all going to blow over. Like, I, I read this article in the New York Times, and you might have seen this. It was sort of like an opinion piece slash 
it wasn't really a review. It was kind of like an opinion piece. Oh, I read ba- that. Yeah, based off yeah. of this book. And it was basically, the title of the article was um, Royalty is a Game and Harry and Meghan Didn't Want to Play. And um, they were talking about the fact that, you know, all the, the royal family probably thought, as probably would have happened, that all of this would have just calmed down with a little patience and just waiting it out. But Harry and Meghan, you know, for better or for worse, and maybe arguably correctly, weren't willing to do that. But I wonder if, like, that's kind of the family approach to things is, we'll check in on her when this blows over. Not, like, while it's happening. And, you know. Well, there does seem to be this weird unwillingness to recognize the the humans underneath all of this, that these aren't just props because I mean, the aides are all, this is a business for them. This is their Mm -hmm. job. So the, the, you know, the people in charge of the machinery of monarchy, they really are just moving chess pieces around a board, you know? And so I think to put it on them to make somebody feel welcome or comfortable is not a great idea because I don't think these people are particularly interested in that. And then the family they seem to silo in their own mm-hmm. little households. So the Cambridges worry about the Cambridges. Everybody else under the Buckingham Palace umbrella worries about them. And everybody's worried about the queen. But nobody's worried about them as people. Right, right. Um, so this idea of like it's just going to blow over kind of comes from that. But they're they're not they're not thinking about well what's going to happen in the meantime while we're waiting for this to blow over and and so my my takeaway from this book is that william's main problem now with harry and i guess megan is like he's just pissed off that harry aired their laundry in public like he might get over harry leaving or the decisions making he might still disagree with harry's speed of life essentially but you know he thought that all of this like their issues the stepping back from senior royals, like all of that should have been handled before it was public knowledge. Um, You know, so like they shouldn't have announced their decision to step back before it was all agreed and hashed out. And and he's really, really pissed at Harry for not towing the line on that because it reflects... Incandescent with rage. Yeah. So, no, but yeah, because he, you know, I think it for him, it's... I kind of understand it yeah. because he is the one actually in line to the yeah. throne and the one it's who's damaging the monarchy. The blowback. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like I you mean, say, the monarchy comes are before so... everything else. The monarchy comes before your brother. The monarchy comes before your sister-in-law. The monarchy comes probably before your own wife. Like yeah. it all comes back. But to also that. this is what I don't understand is all of this is more damaging, I think, than it could have been. So it's like these people – have a mission which is protect the monarchy at all costs but they don't really seem to have a fundamental understanding of what damages it yeah i mean i think they're i think also they're always constantly 20 years behind they have not caught up to the social media age how quickly news spreads i mean by the time they think they have something contained it's already been reported all over twitter you know i think that's a big piece of it. Like they just, they're, they're never proactive. They're not, they're not modern. And I'm talking about when I say they, I'm talking about the aides and the people that are actually like running the yeah. show behind the scenes. Oh no, talk about them. Those, I'm telling you something that was very clear to me in this book. That's the actual like power behind the yeah, monarchy. Those are the gears is like, that make it work. 
the the family are just like literally they're just puppets being moved around to different places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't really seem to have a very big interest in like taking initiative in their own life. And, and what I mean by that is not like oh they have no interest in like deciding I want to do this or that. It's I think when it comes to being a duke or a duchess or the queen or the prince of Wales, these people just are happy to have someone tell them like the best way to do that, where to go, when to smile, whose hand to shake, and like that's the job. Um, which I think is a really great segue because <laughs> that's to me the fundamental argument of this book that Megan's main failure, and by extension Harry's for going along with her, because I do think like she has been an inspiration for Harry to think of things in the same way as her. Her main problem was trying to do her job too well. So instead of just letting the machinery of the monarchy carry her along, she tried to be an active participant and drive her own direction. And that put a huge wrench in what is usually a well-oiled machine because, you know, this is why you get reports of her being a demanding boss or having tantrums. I think reading between the lines, she approached being a duchess like a real job as you and I might go to work and approach our jobs. And it's really not at all. You know, Harry is quoted as complaining about the circus that accompanies all of their public engagements, you know, wishing they could just focus on the work and the the organizations that they're there to promote. But this goes back to what you were asking about, you know, did Harry adequately prepare Meghan for monarchy? So I find this quote fascinating because I'm on the outside looking at this and I can tell you I understand their work is not actually the public service. It's the fact that their presence brings attention to the causes. Like they literally do good by photo op. And Harry weirdly seems to not get this or doesn't want it to be that way. Um, But I could see Meghan chafing at this idea and being frustrated that she actually isn't, you know, like an active participant in quote, like changing the world. Um, and I kind of wonder if he misled her unintentionally, like on their first date, you know, they apparently bonded over this idea of public service. And I guess, you know, this idea of wanting to use their positions to change the world. And I could see him wanting to impress her and talking up what he does is like, oh yeah, I really do all these great causes and they are really good causes, but I don't think he really got across the message, like the method in which he gets it done which is just stand there, point over here, and everyone else will take care of it. Right. Yeah, I mean... And that's their job. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this with the idea of, like, how successful can they be as independent philanthropists outside of monarchy because the monarchy association is what drives all this. It reminds me of their wish list when they had their website come out and they were like, this is what we want. And it was like... They want everything about being members of the monarchy with none of the drawbacks. And that's what this is. Mm -hmm. Again, it's like, oh, I wish we could just do the work without having to pose for pictures and, you know, be a puppet for the public, not realizing that that's all the public wants from you. And, you know, you're a great philanthropist because that is what you do. That's how you're a great philanthropist. And it's it just reminds me of when they were like, we want to further the queen's work but not engage with the Royal Rota or be, you know, under the umbrella of Buckingham Palace. It, and that's what, that's what actually, like, makes me think, like, it is all coming from Harry, this exodus, because 
it sounds like somewhere along the way he kind of lost the plot. Yeah, because none of this that we just described would would or should have been a revelation to him. Right, he should be aware of this, um, right? He's like 33 years old. Like, he yeah. he's lived this life forever. He knows how it works. Like, it's I find, honestly, some of this, what you're describing to be really surprising, where he's frustrated with the palace. He's frustrated with the press. But Harry, this is how it's always been. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying you shouldn't want to change things. But to be shocked at the way it went down is a little surprising. Like, I think it's not surprising that he came to the conclusion that I don't like this and here's this fantastic new woman that's in my life and, you know, driving me to be more and making me ask the question of like, well, why can't we change it? Why can't it be different? Why does it have to be the way that it always was? But this surprise that they faced any kind of obstacle to that, to me, is like what I don't get. Like, you might come in and say, we want to make all these changes. We want to do things our way. But there should have been no shock at all that everybody else would have been like, no. You, you can't do that, you know? And, and I don't think that they had the patience to really hash out, to take the time and hash out a workable solution. Um, because also, I think the biggest, like, crippling blocker to all of this is that the environment, as I mentioned, with the, this dual, like, the system they have of dueling households, is just fatally toxic to, like, anything running correctly, anything running smoothly, any, any, any goodwill that could ever be generated. Like, this just sucks all of that away because... They're all pushing for their own royals to win out in the spotlight. And so what that means is like if anybody gets bad press, they're blaming each other for leaks. You know, it's very clear that the popularity of the Sussexes was viewed as a threat to everyone else who outranked them. Um, But rather than see this as lifting up the entire monarchy because, oh, wow, we've got a young, diverse generation that can really help maintain our popularity abroad. They can help young people in Britain who maybe never paid attention to the monarchy start, you know, looking at us. Instead of recognizing all of that, they decided that the popularity was too threatening to the Prince of Wales and Duke of Cambridge. So they decided to rein it in. I mean, honestly, like all of this to me seems really incompetently run. Like you don't take away your asset. Um, like they know how to throw events, right? But they don't know how to manage their image or I think parlay like comes, or how to like leverage what's good for the monarchy. It all comes down to hierarchy and they can't get away from it. They think – Also, these people are not hired all across the board because they're good right, at this kind right. of thing. It's all about like who Nepotism and all of that. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's like, oh, I work for the queen, therefore I'm more important than you who works for the Prince of Wales. And the queen should be the most popular, and no one can be more popular than the queen because she's the queen. Forgetting the fact that, like, the queen's 93 years old and she's kind of boring. Like, of course Meghan yeah. would be more interesting. And you almost, like, wonder why, again, like, I was just saying, like, the whole argument of, like, let it, ride it out, let it settle, it all would have calmed down. I mean, the same would have been true for their popularity. Right. And so this book made mention that a lot of aides were worried that Meghan was going to become more popular than Diana, which... Uh. I guess is this yeah. like sacred, you know, they all hated her when outrank. she was there. That is so exactly. <laughs> and like, and I also, I really think like all of it would have settled down eventually. Harry and Meghan would have become boring, you know, like everybody would be over them. I just think that on all sides, everybody was just really impatient. And 
So speaking of impatience, uh, it seems like the biggest sticking point with the decision to step down as senior royals is not this idea that they wanted to step down or that they had a certain way in which they wanted to do it, but they really pissed everybody off with the website. Um, the fact that it was built before the decision was made and that anything was approved or announced and they had this whole professionally created website of their new world really, really made everybody angry because basically they thought that meant they were just going to do it anyway. Um, and really what it was is that Harry and Meghan got impatient and didn't want to wait to hash everything out, you know, and, and they said there was going to be a leak, so they went ahead and announced it. Um, but everybody was a little bit angry that there was a website to even have leak, you know, and um, it backfired on them. You know, they got impatient and um, they didn't get what they wanted because they had this huge kind of like needle in everyone's eye in the form of their website. And also, too, what they were asking just wasn't tenable. Like, I think the biggest issue out of, like, their demands was this idea of, like, the attribution of costs, right? So if they did an event, how much of the cost would need to be attributed to public funds and how much would be covered by whatever their private revenue source would be? Like, it's incredibly difficult to try to calculate because you're ultimately going to benefit private and public no matter what you do. Um, and they didn't really have a formula to work that out. Although I don't think the aides really on, on the record really made their case about this because they claimed, oh, they just made a huge headache for everyone. So it kind of made it seem like nobody even wanted to try to figure this out. Like the palace just didn't want to work that hard. I mean, they could have just which like might be slapped true. an arbitrary percentage on it and called it a day. I mean, they really could have. Like they could have been like, okay, when they do um, private events that have public coverage, like we'll have a public funding for like security or you know like there could have been something that they did they just didn't really want to figure it out and I don't think anybody was inclined to because they were so angry. Does the book go into at all what Harry and Meghan were hoping to accomplish with that? You mean with the website? that like nuclear option because I I I guess my question is were they surprised that it backfired? So the book mentions it more as like there are people quoted as saying that they run very hot and cold. Like they're very, actually very kind of impetuous and, you know, that they may have made a hasty decision that they might regret now. Um, but at the time they thought it was the only thing they could do. What it doesn't really go into is the calculations they had done into the feasibility of a lot of this. And and I think they were really coming from an emotional mm-hmm. place, to be honest. I don't think they were thinking through what was actually possible. Well, we talked about that when the website came out. And right. I said to me, the thing that stuck out the most was the money, where it was like... Well, and the money was the well, issue. But, but yeah. how could it not be? Because, like, the whole yeah. section of security was like, we deserve security protection, we won't discuss that further. And it was like, okay, but, like, that's a huge issue. Who pays for that? You know, like, mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah. when you're in a different think, country, who pays for it? And, the, and then, you know, the whole thing of, like, they were talking about how, like, Charles supported their lifestyle and was going to continue to do so. And we were talking about it. I was like, did anybody run that by Charles? <laughs> like, you know. Well, it's funny you say that because this book claims that Charles privately offered to support them as needed. But, like, that wasn't very private. No. <laughs> so. Well, yeah. and you have to. I mean, you, I do think he is actually still supporting them financially. Oh, if he if he didn't help buy that house, I, I mean, know. look, it's a gorgeous home. I 
it's not my style but I mean he's got the he's got the the revenue yeah, he but can afford it. you know and I think once all this went down they basically decided you know to their credit they weren't trying to be sticklers about this like they were like okay we're going to pay back this money for Fragmore House or Cottage which wasn't required of them and honestly I don't really think it is an amount that they should have to pay back because from what I can tell that building was in serious need of renovation and their moving in was just the like serve to kind of move it up mm-hmm. the list and it would have needed needed to be done anyway because if the queen hadn't given it to them she would have given it to somebody else because someone in this book also mentioned like giving away houses is like her yeah. thing. Yeah. No, if it wasn't Harry so, it would have been Eugenie. Like Exactly. So somebody would have done this and like all the reports on the renovation were actually really inaccurate and it was really expensive just because it had to be taken down to the stuff. Right. Because it had been converted into like four different apartments or something. Right. We talked about that at the time. I mean, these how, yeah. these buildings are like decrepit. Like it's like yeah. the plumbing alone, you know. Yeah. I think that was like a PR thing more than anything. You know, it was like they I think anticipated so. the backlash and they were trying to get ahead of it. Um, because that's what the public like money is partially for is maintaining the palaces and the historic buildings. <laughs> so. I guess I'm just more curious. Like when, when all this happened, we talked about it. Like what were they hoping to accomplish here? Because the stories were coming out where everybody just was so blind, you know, blindsided, not by them wanting out, but wanting, you know, their haste in publishing their website and basically announcing that this is how it was going to work. And I'm still not clear who leaked it. Like, I think it's very clear that they oh, I think they hit publish. Sooner. Oh, you mean? Oh no, they did, but they they hit publish because the story was coming out. But I don't know why the story was coming out, and so see both sides say the other one leaked that. But, but I see here's here's everything you've told me. I think is interesting. Like one, well, because Harry had I didn't mention, but Harry had emailed Charles and the Queen, like while they were in Canada, that he wanted to discuss their decision to leave, but he didn't want to do it because he was like, he didn't want to do it over email because he was worried about a leak. Right. And then it I leaked. think from what you've described, you know, I know like a lot of people have blamed the Cambridges for that, but I think what you've described about, Oh, I think it was Clarence. Well, I was just going to say, I think from what you've described of William, just thinking everything should have been private. He has no, he doesn't gain anything by leaking it. Unless it was someone on his staff. But even they, they should all be on the same page, right? I mean, like, that I think fundamentally... But that's the thing, Claire. I don't think these people are. Yeah. Like, I think, like, I think the the staff is, like, running everything and, but, like, like airing... pretending that the monarchs are in charge. Yeah. Because there, there are people quoted in this book as, like, palace staffers, like, bragging that they could, like, email somebody and get any kind of story they want published the next day. Yeah, and I... Like, these people aren't really interested in preserving the image. Yeah, interesting. I just... I mean, honestly, I feel like they should fire all of them and clean house. So do you think it came out from Clarence House, like you just said, in an, in an effort I to, like, sort of, like... That. To stoke backlash so that Harry would second-guess himself? I... Yeah, I sort of feel like it might have been Clarence House just because... Or, or someone on the staff just because, again, going back to this idea of, like the jealousy of their popularity, like, I kind of feel like that came a lot from Charles because he's already sensitive to being, you know, outstripped by his sons. And I think this would have been huge news for Harry and Meghan. And and if they had rolled it out the way they wanted, like, it would have only made them look 
like more modern yeah more modern but also like the victims and like all this and so I just I mean there's no proof this is just my hunch from like what I read is like Harry and Meghan honestly had no good reason to leak this because the leak is what took everything away that they wanted like they had no leverage once it leaked um and I think some of the decisions that were made were retaliatory in response to that like Harry being stripped of his military honors there was no actual reason to do that except you know to twist the knife and so I don't see unless they were really just so blinded as to think that leaking was a position of power I don't know how it could have been um, because you're just going to make everybody angry. So, I mean, yeah, maybe they did. I don't know. Um, but I, I also don't think that they were coming at this from any kind of rational management of the situation. I think this was an emotional decision. I think it was a thoughtful decision. I think they thought through it, but I don't think the execution was particularly polished. Right. So, I mean, I'm, I am asking myself now after reading this, like, is the Sussex separation going to be permanent? I mean, obviously the pandemic has slowed whatever plans they had in the works. Um, But it's also really clear from this book that, you know, the queen doesn't bear them any grudges personally. I mean, she had a a lunch with Harry before he left. You know, she's still his grandmother. They're still very close. And the door is open for them to return whenever they want. I mean, that was why they offered them that initial trial period. Um, I... Because I think the hope is that they will and return. And I think the queen understands more than anybody what it's like to be stuck in that life. And if you had the option yeah. to leave and were bold but enough to But I do think, interestingly, it, she was the hardliner in the Well, because what I was just going to say was if you if you have the option to leave and you're bold enough to take it, like – that's great, you know, because it's, we talked about, like, how, you know, Edward VIII walked away, and that changed her life forever, and she has a real sense of duty, but Harry walking away is not the same situation, because he's not, he's not changing the line of succession, he's not, you know, he's not changing George's life, George is already in line to be, to be the king of England, the difference is that, and we talked about this when this happened, was that you cannot have it both ways, You cannot be one foot in and one foot out. And that doesn't surprise me that she would be the hardliner on that because she knows what the sacrifices are, but she also knows what the perks are. And you can't have the perks without making the sacrifices. That makes everybody else's sacrifice less meaningful. And I think, you know, I I was saying that the military honors thing was a bit of a twist of the knife, but I also think maybe there was a rationale to that as well. And it's related to exactly that. Like that is a perk of being a senior Royal. He didn't really earn those. Right. So yeah, he know, earned like whatever have his that. military rank would have been comparable yeah. to serve the, the years that he served active duty, but like what, maybe he's like a captain in the military. You don't get to be a Colonel. Yeah. Right. You, and you don't get to like lead a regiment when you're not a senior royal. Like, that's just not how it works. Um, But again, this goes back to that question of, like, I just really question Harry a lot in this. And I know Meghan gets all the flack, but I feel like it should fall on Harry because he was the one who should have known better than all of this. And, you know, I don't blame him. I And I don't blame her. I don't think they did anything fundamentally wrong. I think they didn't... They I think they, they failed in executing a lot of things correctly. 
But um, who, who, who would be able to predict the correct right. way to execute that? Right. And, and what I mean by that is, like, I think the way they approached every situation along the way was surprisingly naive. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, they, they had a lot of uh, wishful thinking, I think, by the time they left about what they could accomplish. But I think where I see Harry failing is none of this should have been surprising to him. He's grown up in this. And he's aware of it. I mean, he he's always talked about what he didn't like about royal life. You know, it's why he loved being in the army so much. It's, you know, why he didn't, you know, want to be in England all the time. It's why um, he didn't want to give his son a title. I mean, all of the clues are there, but I don't think that that excuses his lack of preparation for all of this happening, you know. So I think that, you know, the door is open for them to return. I could see them returning in like... 10 years maybe 10 years I was gonna say five years (laughs) yeah interestingly I read today that one of the reasons they moved to Santa Barbara was Harry hated LA Uh, that doesn't surprise me not at all surprised about that I don't know why they ever would have thought that would have worked because the thing he hated about it was the press intrusion and the lack of privacy which is the reason they left royal life and then they moved to the least private celebrity place on earth I mean I just don't know like where else they were gonna go but this, I think, just points to the bigger thing of, like, why is any of this shocking to Right, them? right. Like, why do you move to L.A. and you're surprised that you have paparazzi? <laughs> so, to wrap this up, the burn, the burning okay, question. Any, I was going to say, did you have any burning questions? I know you do. What is the tiara story? <laughs> <laughs> it's the one, It's this, this is, like, the, the most fun story, I think, to come out of all of this because... I just find it so, like... Well, we, we've talked about this classic. a million times at this point. Like, obviously, the story that was reported is not what happened. Right. But it's just this idea of, like, princesses fighting over the tiara is, like... Uh, I find it so funny. But, okay. No, it did not happen the way it was reported. It happened almost exactly like you and I assumed. I'm so proud of us. <laughs> that Go us. The Common sense. I picked, mean... I know. I think we were talking about like binders full of tiaras, but yeah, I assume you know, there was a catalog. Essentially, <laughs> yeah, the queen, you know, invited Meghan and Harry over. She picked out five tiaras that Meghan could choose from, and Meghan chose the one she liked the best. <laughs> like, there were no emerald tiaras on offer. They think that that rumor probably came up because when they were having early discussions about the wedding, you know, maybe somebody was like, "Oh, there's a lot of green, like a tiara with." emeralds would be nice but like that's literally the only time it came up and they were all really confused about this because the only tiara people were really thinking about was that really fancy one we talked about where the emeralds are like dangling off of it i don't even think megan knew about the one that um eugenie wore to her wedding i have honestly i have a theory but i think you're gonna get there okay so the issue with this whole situation and the actual drama of like that led to the story of Harry basically like throwing a tantrum was that the queen's dresser, so her like closest personal aide, dragged her heels on getting Meghan a hair rehearsal with the tiara, which is obviously super important because, you know, you need to be able to move your head. You have to be able to walk down the aisle without the tiara falling off because these things are heavy. Um, And what I find really interesting about this story is that the only people involved in the tiara choosing were Meghan Harry, Angela Kelly, who's the dresser, and the queen. So who talked about this it's story? Angela Kelly. 
Yeah. Here's my theory. It's got to be. I think this is what happened <laughs> because I read that this is one of the stories that was like really heavily reported when this book first came out. I think that she was gatekeeping. You know what I mean? Like she is mm-hmm. one of these hoity-toity snobby courtiers who like prides herself on being the queen's closest aide and was jerky Megan around to like show her that you're nobody. I control the diamonds, so to speak, right? So I think she's the one that leaked the initial story about the tiara because I think these details make sense. If Harry was the one screaming what Megan wants, Megan gets, you know, from her perspective, it's all very embellished on Harry, right? It makes her just seem like the innocent little victim. But the emerald piece is what actually convinces me that it was her because Eugenie ended up wearing an emerald tiara to her wedding. At the time that Harry and Meghan were planning their wedding, Eugenie was also planning her wedding. And if you don't think Angela knew what tiara she was going to wear, again, she controls the tiaras. She's the one that gets them from the safe and does the try-ons. She knew that it, that Eugenie was going to wear an emerald tiara. So before anybody even knew that that emerald tiara existed, she knew it was in the vault. She knew Eugenie was going to wear it. She inserted that little detail to make the story seem more authentic. And I think a little diabolical. I'm telling you, Claire, these people are just awful, awful people. I have no... This woman apparently once, like, rolled around on the floor screaming and having a hair-pulling fight with someone else, like, because they were both dating the same guy. I read that somewhere. Class yeah. act. I'm just saying, no, like, I... This issue of class, Claire, I mean, these are the classiest people in the world. That's what I mean. It's like, <laughs> she had a story to leak, and it was embellished to make it seem like Megan was throwing a fit over a tiara. And then... Which, you know, and exactly as we always talked about, that story was so bizarre because it just doesn't seem like that's at all how they would have, like, approached this kind of situation. Um... And I don't, I mean, this is why I, I like, in all of this, the queen just feels like a distant, passive figure. And I, I honestly just, like, think, think she, she has just no idea half of it's going on. I think that's it. and Or she just doesn't concern yeah. herself. Like, it's just like, whatever. She's dealt with 60 years um, of these people. She's learned, you know, like, just let them fight yeah. it out for the most part. I'll get involved but, if so I have this to. So this ties it all the way back to, like, sourcing where, you know, I read this little, in, this little, bit of news and I just the only thing I thought about was okay so when that story leaked now we know there's only one of four people who were ever in the room at the time so like how could this get out there and and you know like and Harry's like tantrum about what Megan wants Megan gets or whatever was actually just about like Megan wants a hair trial right give her a right. hair trial like it wasn't even about the actual tiara. And he may have even and said that. Megan he may loved have even her tiara. Said, if Megan asks for something, you give it to her. You show her the same respect you would show me if I asked for something. Yeah. Um but that's what that's what I mean. I think that emerald tiara detail is just too specific. Specific. And it almost makes the story seem more true when six months later Eugenie shows up at her wedding in an emerald tiara. Yeah. Speaking of her wedding, apparently she was really angry when they announced their pregnancy at her wedding. So she did, they did do that. They did do that. But the reason they did it was because they were literally leaving like the next day or soon after for 
Australia and they wanted to tell the family in person. And these people do not just like casually bump into each other. Like they almost don't really see each other that often. So like this probably literally was the only opportunity to do that. And they announced her pregnancy earlier than most people would. Like she hadn't even reached 12 weeks yet, but they did it because they knew she was already showing and that entire tour was going to be a question about is Megan pregnant? And they were like, we got to shut that down because that's really distracting to everything. Yeah, but so, that's, mm, that's, mm, I, I mean, I don't think the timing was really good, but like, I was thinking about that. Cause I was like, would I still announce it at no. a wedding? But then I also was kind of like, would I be angry if I was getting married and somebody announced their pregnancy? Probably not. Like, I, I guess, like, but again, these are not normal people in a Listen, normal family. Listen, I like, have personally run interference where I found out somebody was planning to announce a pregnancy at another friend's wedding and shut that shit down. Because you don't do that. Like, you... Well, you don't, like, not announce it. Like, hey, everybody, yeah, guess no, what? But, you but don't, be like, oh, you're not drinking. You yeah, I'm not drinking. That's like, like you, you... Look, you, and maybe it depends on the bride, obviously. But I don't think that you do that. And I... I understand the reasoning behind it and all of that, but I think it's, it's, that's a bit of a faux pas. I, I'm actually surprised. So what I what do you think their other option was? Operating under the assumption that they just didn't do that. I, I, cause I was like, who would do that? So what do you think their other option was? Like send an email from the plane? Yeah. yeah like she wasn't even showing on the tour. I mean, that, that like, by the end, maybe, but, like, yeah, the argument that she was already showing, I was, like, I don't know, like, if she was showing enough to be not just be, like, oh, the Duchess had some bread for lunch, like, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, um, like I said, nothing, like, super revelatory in this book. I mean, I think, for me, the biggest lessons were, or the biggest news to me was the timeline of Harry and Meghan's relationship was actually a lot shorter yeah, than I was thinking. Yeah. And I think really they just ran into a difference of opinion on like what it means to go to work. I think it's interesting. This is almost like a really interesting bookend to our episode that we did on Harry and Meghan with Margaret and Peter Townsend. Um, Yeah. Because this fills in a lot of... This is like our second episode or like our fourth episode or something. This fills in a lot of the blanks. Like, it's kind of interesting. (laughs) I mean, and it's also like that was another situation where you had the second in line who was arguably more popular than the one actually in line for the throne. And I think you get a lot of similar dynamics. Um, If you haven't listened to that episode, I think that's... Personally, I, I'm a little biased, but Allie did a really good job on that episode. So um, mm. you should check that out. But I don't know. I think this is like an interesting bookend because I find a lot of these details really fascinating. I think you're right. A lot of this isn't new, but it's interesting to hear their side of it. I think I agree with you. I don't think anybody would argue that this was necessary, but I could see the temptation. I could see why you would want to get yourself out there on the record in the only way that you can because I maintain after everything I just don't know if it accomplishes that goal well I agree with you there's no way they didn't provide information no I just mean like I don't know if this even counts as like their side of the story on the record in the only way they could like because nothing about this is really forcefully making an argument no but I don't think that it's I think if you make a forceful argument you sound defensive 
in this particular situation. Maybe. This is the way to do it. You just present this as like, this is how it happened from, you know, not from the couple themselves. Hint, hint. Like, you know, it's just, it's the only way that you can do it. But I think, I don't know. I'm entertained. I'll probably read it at some point. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me of the Lifetime movies that come out. Um, is it gonna, like, you know, I, I would love a psychological profile. You know what interests me about monarchy is being born into this life and not having a choice. And I find Harry a really fascinating case study because he's trying to have a choice, but he's still constrained by the fact that he doesn't have anything to fall back on. Because, right. like, what what skills does he have well, I was literally just going to say he doesn't have the skills because he's never been forced to learn them. Like, he doesn't even have the skill. It's not that, like, I think he could work. Like, he has the skill of, like, he knows how to go into a room and, like, do a job, right? But I don't think he has the skill to make, like, things happen well, in his own life. Let's talk about them buying you know? a house and getting a mortgage. They did not march down right. to their local credit union and apply for a mortgage. I mean, I actually think Megan knows how to do but that. But they didn't but... do that. They had someone make a few phone calls, move the money around, and boom, they owned a house. Yes. You know, yeah. I mean, that's not how most people function. So I think Harry's... Oh, and you know, the other reason I think Charles helped them with that is because more than once in this book, they're, he and uh, Harry and Megan are both described as being very careful with money. So they wouldn't just like drop $10 million on a I house? I don't think they blew yeah. $10 million on yeah. a house. Yeah, I mean, look. Where did they get ten that, million? That's the other. That's question. just a different way of living. Like we've talked about that. You know, the standards for normal people don't apply to these people. Like they, they have more than enough money to be fully supported for life by your parents, and that's how they expect to live. Oh, the uh, sorry. This is just little drips, but like the um, speaking of that, of like their life is not our life. Is like they did cover the drama around the private plane. Oh or sorry, private planes, plural. Apparently they took like three trips that summer on private planes. And people warned Harry before he was like, you're going to get blowback for this. Well, of course they and did. And he was like, well, I'm just going to do this. And like they got blowback and then I was just like, but again, this goes back to like none of this should have been surprising because, and the reason they told him, because he literally took a private jet home from a summit where he was discussing his climate change initiative with TripAdvisor and all those people, the, the travelist one. Mm. And they were like, you're literally going to fly home from this on a private jet. Like, people aren't going to be okay with that. But he did it because he stayed an extra day to talk with people about it and he hitched a ride. So somebody was already going to use that private jet. So I think in his mind he was like, oh, I'm making it more ego Right, right. It's all about the optics, though. Right. So, hmm. I mean, in that, that's not technically wrong, but yeah, I don't think they've thought through the optics of that very well. Interesting. But I think that just goes to like, to him, that's like no big deal. Right. Cause it's just, it's like taking the bus. The bus is already going downtown. I'll just get on it. Yeah. Hmm. Um, all right. Well, this was, this was longer yeah, than I thought Yeah, I really it was didn't be. think we'd be talking about this this long. But it's a fascinating, I don't know, it's fascinating. I really could talk about this all day because I find, like you say, I think the thing I find the most interesting is like the psychological angle of this or like 
to me, the this idea of like this really toxic work environment that people just like are terrible at their jobs and like it's also a family and all of this. And it's just like, it's so interesting um, because it's just such a rare situation that you would find yourself in. Like most toxic work environments, you can extricate yourself from, but this one, like you just really can't. Um, so yeah, it, this is why we're all still talking about this. Um, I did want to add though that you know, if you want a good read, like a good summary read, like this is perfect for that. It's, trust me, it will not tax you mentally. Um, but I wanted to bring up what I was really thinking about while I was reading this book are two excellent novels in the same vein by the same authors, sorry, not the same authors of these books, but both of these books are by the same authors. Um, but they're called The Royal We and The Air Affair. Oh, I've read those. Yes. Um, I think those are much better versions of this book. Yes, I was I was going to bring that up because they talk about, I think they do a good job of imagining how all of this would go behind the scenes. They're pretty on the nose. Yeah. It's it's kind of scary. Yeah. Yeah. No. But I think if you're going to read a book that's like describing ornate interiors and weird family dynamics, it's way more interesting to read those books than this. Those books so. are also great because I love the way they imagine the queen, especially in the second book. She becomes obsessed with baseball and it's, yeah. it's very entertaining. Like you'd like to imagine that there's a secret inner world where these people are not super stuffy and boring. Um, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah. Though. I mean, no, it's fiction. But I like it. It was nice to imagine that, you know. Oh, it's so nice to imagine, but I I don't know. These people seem so formal even with, like, themselves. Yeah. Those are good. Check them out. They're by the um, – what are their names? Um, Heather Cox and – I know. I couldn't remember their names. Jessica – I'm so sorry to the second author. I will remember your last name in our royal oops next time. But they are the creators of the website Go Fug Yourself. And that was F U also an yeah, that was F U G. So in case you think I swore there, um, but they do <laughs> fashion commentary on celebrities, and actually they've been really fun to follow recently because there's like hardly any coverage out there. So they've been going back into like more retro things of like royal weddings, um, movie premieres from like the '90s. It's actually like it's actually fun to check out. So. You know what I didn't need to remember was the fashion from the aughts. That was a lot of the, I Apparently, I forgot about a lot of it because I did not remember the belts and a lot of the things. And I was like, let's just erase this. There's a lot of like extra out of everything. So, anyway, but yeah. So, check that out if you are into this kind of stuff. Um, we should probably wrap this up because this is getting really yes. long. Yes. But um, <laughs> we'll be back next time with an actual royal to cover. I kind of have been thinking about this as like our informal media series where everything we've done so far has kind of been informed by something that's happening in pop culture or in the media. So we did, you know, print, um, King George and that sort of tied into the Hamilton um, mm -hmm. airing on Disney Plus. And then we talked about that Slate article that kind of tied into like current events. Um, and this is obviously current pop culture. And I think our next... I'm not exactly sure who we're doing next, but, um, you know, it's probably going to tie in in a similar way. So if you were wondering what our theme was, it's very loose, but we do have a bit of a theme going on with this series, I think, so. Yeah, I was noticing, like, our, our episode seasons, however you want to think about it, are very 
inconsistent in terms of length, but I do tend to bucket them by theme. So we have moved into this new one. I, I'm enjoying it. I mean, we just talked for an hour and 40 minutes about this book. so Yeah, I may not even have to read it at this point. So You, you, you know all about it now, so you really don't have to. <laughs> all right. Well, until next time. Until then. Monarchast is produced by me, Allie, and me, Claire, and our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.